He's known for having bad luck in the Indianapolis 500, but he knows what bad luck is really all about, and he didn't have it. First competing in the Indianapolis 500 in 1965, he started fourth, finished third, and was the obvious choice for Rookie of the Year. He was the youngest driver ever to win the USAC National Championship that year at 25 years old and won it again in 66. He sat on the pole for the 500 in 1966 and 67 and broke through in 69 when he won the race in a backup car. He won 29 of 85 races on the USAC circuit between 66 and 69 and seemed to be on the way to winning multiple Indy 500s. But luck is never more fleeting than in racing and he never quite had enough of it to win again before retiring from the race in 1994. His name became synonymous with bad luck at the Speedway. And yeah, everyone's heard the joke about the most famous four words at the race. Mario is slowing down, but he's got perspective. He could have been like his twin brother Aldo, who was forced to retire because of injuries suffered in two major accidents. Or like those friends who lost their lives in racing. All in all, he had more success than anyone in the sport winning in all forms of racing over five decades. So it's no wonder he was voted driver of the 20th century. I'm Mark Monteith, and in part two of my conversation with one of the all-time legends of the sport, I'm going one-on-one -on -one with Mario Andretti. This is One on One with Mark Monteith on 1070 The Fan. Brought to you by Georgetown Market, Indy's family-owned natural food store since 1973. Movie Time Video Productions, they make your memories last forever. And Robin Run Village, Central Indiana's finest continuing care retirement community. What are your earliest memories of the Indianapolis 500? Once you got to the United States, you'd already heard of it, but... Do you remember the first time you like maybe saw a newsreel of it or something on television, that type of thing? Or? The earliest memory is uh, still in Italy, actually, when um, there was a movie uh, titled To Please a Lady with Clark Gable and Barbara Stanwyck. Mm -hmm. He obviously was a hero race car driver who uh, was trying to get to Indianapolis through the short tracks and all that. And I saw that, and the title in uh, Italy was not to please, uh, you know, a, a translation to please a lady was Indianapolis. Ah. And that in itself piqued my curiosity because what's Indianapolis? Is it Indian something or Naples? Is it Naples? You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It couldn't make it out. But I saw uh, on the ads, you know, on the wall that, uh, you know, I see race cars, you know, on the posters, you know, on the wall and so forth. I said, God, race cars, but they look different. And that's, you know, that's where I got the idea that mm -hmm. there was some racing in America. Anyway, and this is back in 1952. Yeah. I was 12 years of age. And then when we came over in 55, later on, you know, obviously racing was always in our, on our minds. And even before we started racing, the first race that I, Indianapolis race that we saw was 1958. And uh, my uncle, uh, Louis, they owned the, uh, the gas station, took Aldo and I, brought us over to, to, uh, to see this race. In okay. fact, uh, we, uh, there was uh, uh, one of these trailer parks here in, in Georgetown Road, mm -hmm. and we slept in a car the night before <laughs> there, and we had a, we had a seat somewhere coming off of fourth, turn four. 
Okay. You know, and uh, that's when we watched the, fir- the first race. So the three of you come and you sleep in a car outside the track. Yeah. And you got a seat on the fourth turn. Yep. Are you on the outside of the track or the outside inside? Of outside the of, the of the track. Pretty good seat then. Yeah, pretty good seat. It was a little bit too low. Yeah. You know, we could have probably gone a little higher. Cause I could see a lot of helmets going by, you know. <laughs> and uh, But it was still, you know, the excitement. Well, yeah, I was going to say, what did you think of the spectacle? Oh, just, uh, you know, anyone that attends this event is just that. I mean, uh, you want to be here. You want to experience it because uh, the event itself is something like uh, you can even explain, quite honestly. Yeah. It's uh, one of those you have to be there. Yeah, and I'm I'm guessing at that time you're thinking, well, I'm going to race here someday. You know, did that become? Yeah, uh, no question about it. I had the same thought when in 1954 in Monza, when uh, we witnessed our very first Grand Prix. Um, you know, I says, you know, God, please, someday, I want to be here. And uh, and it was the same thing. You know, it was uh, that was my next immediate goal because it was more realistic you know, to be a, a racing driver here than a Grand Prix driver at the time. So my focus obviously turned to Indianapolis because I want to be open wheel cars. That That's what interested me uh, all along. And um, and Indy was obviously one of the goals, one of the, the ambitious goals, yeah. for sure. Were you, as an Italian immigrant, were you accepted when you came over here, both just in everyday life in Pennsylvania, but also when you got into racing, were you well accepted? Yes. I, I never found uh, that to be any kind of a stumbling block or anything or, or negative. And that was always a pleasant part to, to some degree because uh, sometimes you're cautious about it, you know, and... Um, and you expect maybe some resistance here and there. And I never really, and never, I could not give you a, a one example, you know, where we felt uh, that, uh, you know, we were rejected or not accepted or, you know, something like that. I think a lot of people here, for whatever reason, saw the Europeans, whether you're from Italy or England or whatever, you guys were kind of exotic, you know. <laughs> you, you had the nice accents, and you just seemed to personify racing in a lot of ways, too. I mean, Jimmy Clark was popular, and it seemed like all the European drivers were popular. Well, I'll when give you an example. Uh, like when we uh, started racing with the Stocker, the Hudson, you know, uh, in those days, nobody had a, a driving suit on. You know, they used to have a T-shirt yeah. and, you know, and we, uh, we bought two driving suits from Italy, Sala Sport, one white, one blue. And, and Aldo was wearing blue and I was wearing white. All the zippers and everything. Hey, when we showed up at the track, who would not believe that we were racing in Italy? You see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That was a, almost a slight degree of intimidation to some of the locals because, say, hey, man, these dudes are prepared. You first came to the race in 58. Did you come every year for a while or, you know, what was the... No, n- no. Um, as far as after the first race, uh, I mean, I, I was racing. I started racing, uh, you know, as I said, a year later and then you know was busy doing that and and the next time that I was here was in 1964 because I was racing sprint cars in Midwest and I was in racing USAC already and I actually picked up a ride in a Dean Van Line car promised a ride after Indy they didn't think you know Clint Brown I didn't think and rightfully so by the way didn't think I was ready for Indy 
but I had uh, I was um, going to be taking over from Chuck Halls, who had was hurt in New Bremen, you know, in a sprint car race that I was in actually, uh, which uh, ended his career. And so again, I was here because I was racing sprint cars, and of course, you know, was witnessing the the event. But uh, 1965 was my actual rookie year. Andretti makes an immediate impact in Indianapolis, winning Rookie of the Year in 1965. And after sitting on the pole a couple of times, breaks through and wins the race when one-on-one continues. Welcome back to one-on-one. Mark Monteith here with racing legend Mario Andretti. He seemed destined to win several Indy 500s after getting his first one in 1969, but it was not to be. He led laps and he dominated races, but he never got that second victory. Is he bitter about it? Let's find out. Well, you start fourth, finish third in your first 500. Then you start on the pole the next two years. Then you start fourth in 68. And then, of course, in 69, you start second, finish first. What do you recall about just the thrill you got from winning this race? And, you know, how do you celebrate winning the Indianapolis 500? Well, it's easy to celebrate once you win it, believe me. Uh, It comes very natural. But, um, you know, as you could see, uh, my rookie year was, you know, obviously uh, very good. I finished, I finished uh, third. And then the following year, I was really felt competitive. I was winning some race. I won the national championship in 65 Mm -hmm. after my rookie year here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and the car, everything, the team was working, 66, 67, won national championships. And, uh, and I 67, I think I finished second. But, uh, and the fact that I was competitive here and then I would drop out, you know, almost both years, 66, 67, I had, the car was so good that I probably could have won two of the easiest races of my career here and yet you know i had uh, misfortunes uh, mechanically one you know dropped the valve at the start on one and then and on the other one uh, wheel come off at the start because of bad machining or something uh 68 went to the new um ford turbocharged engine not proven at all boom after first lap burn a piston I figured, what, do, what do i have to do to finish this race <laughs> yeah and I was competitive. 69, we come here with the Andy Grantelli. We had that latest and greatest, uh, in, you know, as far as uh, sophistication with the Lotus four-wheel drive and, and all of that, the aerodynamics, the car was fast. Boom, that car disintegrated. I almost killed myself uh, in turn four, wheel came off, and they had to withdraw the cars because they had other failures, you know, it, Graham Hill and so on and so forth. So, and then all of a sudden we had to go to a car that I n- never intended to race here, but it came away from a race winning in Hanford, California, on a mile and a half track just before here. So the thing, you know, was not bad, but we, you know, it was uh, a backup. It was a backup. I mean, backup, backup. And uh, here we put that in the middle front row. Then in the race, I'm overheating like crazy because, uh, again, 
Uh, they, we had to take an external radiator off because we didn't qualify with it. And we just messed up on, on the rule that it was our fault. And so, again, the engine, we, we put another, they put another radiator underneath, uh, hidden away, but it was not effective at all. All it did is burn my back. <laughs> and uh, so the car overheating like crazy. And I figured, oh, gosh, no way, you know. But I s we're still running up front. Boom, boom. Here we go. You know, it's running and running. And uh, I finished the race. We win it. This is the scene in the closing moments. The white flag, one lap for Mario Andretti. And the crowd beginning to pay its tribute to Andretti. The young man who came to this country at the age of 14 as an immigrant from Italy. He had driven racing cars even before he came over here. This was the one he wanted more than anything else in the world. And here it comes, Mario. The checkered flag of victory. He's done it. And look at this scene in the pit. And you talk about a weight off your shoulder. That's really, that's the first thing that really came to mind. I said, oh gosh, this is fabulous that at least I got this out of the way. Because you almost have to do that because it's so unfair. This race is so huge, so important from the standpoint that it's known all over the world that you're judged. You, mm -hmm. your, your career is judged by this race. How many great, great drivers that never won the race don't get their due credit? Mm -hmm. So it's just one of those things, you know, you, you just, uh, oh yeah, the thrill, of course, of winning any race. But here you figure, you know what? God, this is big. This is big for my career. And it's, uh, it's just one of those that, oh, you know, it just uh, almost relaxes you after that. And I'm guessing at that time you thought, I'm going to win a bunch of these. Well, uh, God willing, I thought, yes. I think, uh, okay, I get this one out of the way. Then I think from now on, hopefully, if I'm ar still around, you know, <laughs> uh, I'll put a couple more together. And, you know, it was never to be for whatever, whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. Well, and that's the irony of it, that when you had the best cars, you didn't win. The time you won, you were driving a backup car that, you know, it makes no sense. You said the irony of it all. Yeah. Indeed. That's exactly right. I mean, uh, I dominated this race. Mm-hmm several times and I felt you know I was I felt to myself you know which is very few times you can say that I'm the guy to beat I mean I wouldn't say it to anybody else but I felt you know what today they have to beat me and there are not too many times in my career period that I could say that but I did it a few times here I figured you know God as long as I'm running I mean they have to deal with me but then again there's always something happening you know and yeah. uh, but the fact that I was competitive, the fact that uh, if you look, uh, I think I'm second all-time uh, leading in, point, uh, you know, uh, uh, lap leading here, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's a satisfaction in yeah. itself. Yeah. You know, for me, it has to be, and I look at that as the absolute positive. Of the races you did not win, does one stand out as the most frustrating for you? Yeah, the, the, the most frustrating uh, had to be in 1987, where if you look at the record, Every single day that I was out on the track in practice, I was quickest, including pole. We even won pit stop competition. And in the race, I mean, while I was, a, except for pit stops, I led every lap. I was one lap in the lead after I had made my last pit stop. 
and uh, with 23 laps to go, a valve spring broke. And the reason the valve spring broke, we found out later, is because I was trying to be conservative. I was running the engine in lower rev range, which was in the bad harmonics of the engine, which we found out later. Mm. Because I was always hearing this thing about from the engine, the engine, the, uh, the engine guys always saying, uh, keep the revs down, keep the revs down, you know, and you always have that in your head. So how many times do you have the luxury of keeping your revs down, yeah, you know? Yeah. So here I'm leading. I got such a comfortable lead. I said, man, I'm going to be as easy as possible because usually you run very close gears. You run like you fourth, fifth, and sixth, very close, you know, and um, if you really have to com compete, you run in fourth, and then uh, you can relax in fifth and sixth when you're just cruising. So I'm running in sixth. And, but I was feeling some vibrations, you know, in the engine. But what the hell? I said, okay, I'm really being easy on him. And that's what really did me in, actually. Mm. That's frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. At the time you stopped racing here, was it at all difficult to reconcile your quote-unquote bad luck here? I mean, has that evolved over the years where now you can look back and say, hey, I had a great career here and I was really fortunate? But to be honest with you, I, I never, ever really... Uh, looked back and, and said, you know what, uh, I, I've been uh, slighted here or so on. I really don't because I've been around the game for so long that I know that there's certain things are out of your control. And, you know, okay, you make some mistakes, and I made some mistakes here too, but for the most part, I didn't. And the fact that some of those things, you know, the mechanicals or whatever happened, I did my job. And that in itself has to be good enough. And you can't go cry about it. So, as again, when I, I, always, I always did, not just today or, or you know, after I came out of the cop, because I said, you know what, I have to be satisfied with I was always satisfied with that part. I said, as long as I'm competitive. I was, I was competitive to the very last race. And that is important to yeah. me. People talk about the end ready luck. You know, your son, Michael, led so many laps here without winning. Marco, you know, even referred to it after he almost run the race that mm -hmm. year. But I would think in your mind, particularly keeping in mind Aldo's bad luck, you must not feel like you've really had bad luck. No, never. And uh, the, the bad luck, you know, they call it the, the curse, you know, which my good friend Tom Carnegie obviously had some fun with that, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I never looked at it that way. And this was primarily something that the press picked up and, and they, you know, and they thought that that was, you know, something to run with. But uh, I didn't see the real re the reality to that because even with Michael, as you said, how competitive he was, how many four-time winners never dominated here? Mm -hmm. He dominated more than once. Again, was he capable of winning? You're darn right. He didn't. You know, so that doesn't make him a less lesser driver. And look how many laps. He led more laps here than any other non-winner also, but more laps than some four-time winners. Yeah. So, uh, you know, let's, you know, put things in perspective. You know, Marco obviously has hopefully a long way to go. I mean, he started out really well here no question you could <laughs> i mean uh, to finish second and all that and and he's been competitive uh, uh, ever since every race here you know he's been competitive so you know our hope is on him at the moment obviously to carry on uh, michael has derived a lot of his satisfaction as an owner being uh, twice winner as an owner 
you know, so again, uh, I, we, we have no complaints about this place uh, regardless. I mean, Jeff brought us down to some reality as well, you know, poor Jeff. Uh, with his, uh, he loses a wheel, breaks, you know, a hub breaks, and he almost uh, lost both his legs. You know, that again, just like Aldo, it brings you back to, you know, puts things in perspective again. You know what? It's never a given. You know, it's uh, appreciate what you have because, you know, it's not easy and it's not, again, you know, something that you can expect. Uh, Jeff, and they all had the same dream. My Arnaldo had the same dreams that Michael and myself had, but it didn't work out for them. So that makes you appreciate that much more, you know, what uh, what went right for us. Just think, though, if you had not won that race in 69, your perspective might be different, though, that at least you got that one race that you won. Oh, no question about it. You know, like I said, uh, it was just that's why I call it a big relief, you know, that uh, – all of a sudden, yeah, I would have you know, said, well, what are you going to do? I mean, I know how Michael feels, you yeah. know, but uh, but it is what it is. You know, it's, uh, again, you got to fall back to the fact that uh, some things you just cannot control because there are too many factors that are out of your control. The Indy 500 was just the tip of the iceberg for Mario Andretti. He'll discuss his other racing adventures when one-on-one continues. But first, here he is with Jim McKay after winning the 500 in 1969. Mario, you have won the Indianapolis 500. You've run it, won it like a champion in every respect. What thoughts are going through your mind now in the moments after victory? Jim, just thoughts of happiness, believe me. I, I've been uh, wanting to win this race so bad that you can't believe it and uh, uh, I can't I still can't believe it's true I'm just uh, I'm gonna have to be pinching myself all night until tomorrow when that Lotus racer went into the wall and destroyed itself a week or so ago did you think you still had a solid shot well I thought here it is you know this uh, uh, all our hopes were shattered but uh, uh, we had a spare car and uh, a very capable car as you can see so uh, uh, once we got it out on the track and uh, we uh, were able to see how fast we could go, uh, then all of a sudden I became uh, uh, full of confidence again, and uh, I guess that paid off. Back on one-on-one, I'm Mark Monteith. Mario Andretti is a legend within the racing world because he won in so many forms of the sport. He won the Daytona 500 and a Formula One title, among others. The sport has never seen a more versatile driver or one who is more competitive for so many years. No wonder then that racing still haunts his dreams. As you look back, you raced and won in all areas of racing, stock cars, you know, Formula One and everything. Was any one of those the most fun for you that you enjoyed the most? You only you really enjoy what you uh, when you're winning, you know, because that's <laughs> that's your ultimate uh, satisfaction, and that that's what you that's what keeps you uh, motivated. Once you get the taste of it, there's nothing else that can compare to it. So, uh, luckily, you know, uh, I was you know I had the opportunity to to drive in different disciplines, but also with good teams that gave me. Uh, the best possibility of bringing in a result. And I found so much satisfaction out of diversifying because 
I don't say it's easy, but it's easier to specialize in just mm-hmm. one discipline and and uh, and just concentrate on that. And I found it to be a uh, satisfying challenge to go out there and try to play in somebody else's sandbox and yeah. try to beat them at their game. I found that to be almost to me the ultimate. And I had those opportunities. And I love sports cars. You know, I just really enjoy driving stock cars. I drove stock cars in USAC. And not a lot, you know, but enough to really appreciate it, get the feel and know exactly, know what's going on and know what these dudes are, you know, are facing, what they're. So uh, <clears throat> you almost like to be informed, you know, and uh, not to feel, oh, gosh, I wish I would have done this and that. I don't have hardly a- any of that, you know, like yeah. uh, I felt because of the fact that I was able to compete in all these uh, disciplines, I felt my career is that much more com- complete uh now formula one obviously that was my ultimate my first dream and ultimate in the sense that your first dream is always the probably the most important if you will when i was here in 65 jim clark was competing he won the race colin chapman the owner obviously here they represented the elite in formula one and I, i and i befriended them for a reason, <laughs> because, uh, and I approached Colin Chapman at one point, because, um, you know, we went to uh, different social events together because I was the young pers- rookie perspective and, and Jim was uh, the rookie of the year the year before. So, and, and I had the occasion to just chat with uh, Mr. Chapman. I said, I said, Colin, I said, someday I'd like to do Formula One. And he says, Mario, he says, when you think you're ready, call me. And that's when I really, I uh, um, lobbied for road races in USAC. In fact, the very first road race, the champ car race that USAC had, I won at Raceway Park Mm. in 65. It's the only race I won that year in the the championship. But then there started more road racing. Then I went to... uh, uh, I was had a great relationship with Ford at the time. They were they had a, a very ambitious Le Mans program, so I embarked in that, and I was in every single test they ever had. So I wanted to expand my road racing knowledge. Like I said in '68, I called Colin, and uh, and I did my very first race, my very first Formula One race. It was at Watkins Glen, New York. I had never seen the place. I was and I put the car on pole. So that was another auspicious beginning for me. And I said to myself, before my career is over, I hope that I can devote some full time to Formula One. And I did part time because of my contracts and there were you know, other factors involved that I could have gone Formula One back in 71. But in 71, after I won my first Grand Prix in South Africa, Ferrari offered me a full time ride. And I already had won some sports car races for them. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it, but whatever. But ultimately, you could not have written, you know, th- this thing, or you could not have even fathomed that I clinched the world championship in Monza, That's right. where I saw my very first race, first oh, Grand Prix race. That's hey. where I clinched the world championship. That's full circle, right? Yeah, there. in 1978. You talk about uh, nobody could appreciate that more than I. And uh, so you could see, uh, gosh, I mean, have I been blessed? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Did your dad, mom and dad, have a chance to see you race here? or? 
Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, my dad, obviously, uh, after we, you know, uh, we finally were legally twenty-one. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't, res- you know, he just uh, he he, st- he started following and then understanding and appreciating, and he became this, you know, the biggest. Uh, yeah. Was su- he here in '69? Supporter, absolutely, yeah. he was, that and, and my mother. My mother was a daredevilish thing, you know. She 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 really liked the the idea they were I mean as a mother you're always concerned but but she she liked the idea that we were involved because and she was like her brother. Her brother, my uncle Bruno, he was the guy that actually I thought he was so cool because he always had motorcycles, you know, and he's helmets, goggles on, you know, all yeah. the things that impress little <laughs> kids. And I thought he was cool, you know, so, and my mother was one of those too, you know, and I guess I got a little bit of my mother. I was going to say your racing instincts must come from her side. (laughs) I think so, for sure. (laughs) Not from my dad. God God bless him. I've got a theme question I've asked everybody that I've interviewed for this program. Uh, When you are sleeping at night, dreaming, do you have dreams that you're driving again? Yes. And unfortunately, almost every dream is a crash. Really? The crash that actually really had my attention something that lasted it seemed like you talk about a crash lasting well and uh, i think it was in 73 i think it was here i should know the year but i i I'm, i think it was 73 where i lost a rear wing broke i was driving an eagle car for uh, Parnelli, mm-hmm. uh, you know Parnelli jones val Melitich team anyway uh, the wing broke going down the straightaway the back straightaway and and I the back end lifted and I was in full song and I knew it was going to be a crash and I had a long time to think about that and uh, and you know and and I remember in those days uh, a lot of the front end crashes in an eagle you know these guys were losing you know they were having problems getting a lot of injuries you know in their in their lower extremities so I pulled my my feet back and I, luckily I'm I'm short. And the, the whole tray in the front was wiped out, and I came away okay. But I had such a big fear because I had no control of the car. And the other one that actually stays with me is, uh, I was, uh, I think it was, well, it was 1970 in, uh, in Austria driving Formula One race. My throttle stuck. I went over uh, Pedro Rodriguez's rear wheel. And I went over the fence and down to a marsh upside down. And I thought I was going to suffocate to death. And that was another thing that I wake up, you know, that comes to me, believe it or not. And my yeah. wife says, sometimes I'm screaming, you know. So it's amazing how those things just never leave you. And then I'm in Montona, you know, in my birth city, town coming down the hill from my car and just trying to run out, you know, run over these little ladies coming out of church, you know, so even that one is still with me. It's amazing. Yeah. Or I mean, Luca, you know, it, it's, it's really strange things that come back to you, but they're all connected with something, you know, with the racing side of it. Yeah. Do you ever have a dream that you've won the Indianapolis 500 again? No, no, I didn't have that dream. Yeah. That had to be a reality or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I ask that question and I get all kinds of answers. Some athletes, you know, their dreams, they're winning and everything's great. And some, they're terrible. You know, like Larry Bird told me that he has a recurring dream that he's playing and he's terrible. You know, yeah. he can't do anything. And it, there's no explanation. For but, you know, it. actually, now you're talking. You know what really, another one that really gets to me is um, uh, it was one race here. It was in 1967. 
we almost missed the start of the race because was got we had some miscommunication and i was at the airport waiting for a helicopter to pick me up which they canceled then i mean uh, uh, it's a long story they were they were singing um, in, uh, back home again back in home indiana. again in indiana where you basically get, my car was on pole <laughs> and i was just coming through the gate <laughs> Oh, I mean, it was just that, yeah. and I, and I, and then I, uh, you know, I've been to racetracks all over the world, and it's a lot of things are always complicated. You know, you arrive there, sometimes you get stuck in traffic. I was stuck in traffic in Austria one time, and you know, and I didn't, and the police did not understand that I'm one of the drivers. I need to get <laughs> around this traffic, and and then you get chased, and and uh, and I get this thing about that I didn't make the race, that yeah. I that I missed the race and stuff and it's that's another part that really haunts me when i'm sleeping <laughs> <laughs> yep that's a i hear that one too that i couldn't get to the event or i forgot yeah. something you yeah. know, I forgot my helmet or whatever that yeah. type of thing yeah. so couldn't find my helmet you know yeah. where did you guys put everything <laughs> where did you put my helmet bag and ready reflects on racing life and business and comments on the state of the sport today when one-on-one -on -one continues. We're back on one-on-one. -on -one. Mark Monteith here with none other than Mario Andretti. He's had a lot of success outside of racing, both in his personal life and in the business world. Here's Andretti realizing all his good fortune. And by the way, if you notice the different audio quality, it's because this part of the conversation took place on a different day in a different place. So how did your upbringing and your life experience as a kid uh, factor into your racing career? How did it help you? Or well, I think uh, in many ways it helped me about uh, appreciating certain values. Um, uh, such as being able to pursue your dreams, uh, having the opportunities here in America, uh, and just then keeping the family together. You know, the family aspect uh, always very important. And I think, uh, you know, people ask me uh, about uh, you know life in general. You know, what you think uh, an achievement in your life that you think is worthwhile. Yes, I mean career-wise, of course, selfishly, you know, I accomplish a lot of the things that I, my goals, that uh, my most ambitious goals. But the other part is uh, being able to keep the family together. All those years when, uh, you know, traveling weekends, you know, when uh, normal people having picnics and everything else, and and fathers going to graduations, you know, I missed all that because uh, this this was always work for me. And my wife stayed by my side and she sort of uh, dealt with it. Uh, she was my rock, you know, to the day she is. I mean, she, she covered for me with uh, our grand, you know, one of our granddaughters, uh, uh, two of them graduating uh, in college. So she stays back there. She goes and, and Barbie, you know, uh, my daughter Barbie, she reminds me uh, often, you know, Dad, you were ne never came to my graduation, things like that. So as you can see, there were some drawbacks, but at the same time, uh, by hook or crook, we kept, kept it all together. Uh, and the kids traveled extensively with us and exposed to a lot of good things. And, and again, with all the disruptions uh, that you would have, uh, you know, in a career that you cannot be part of, you know, a lot of the family gatherings. 
still we, uh, you know my, the end kept it together for me and and that in itself I think uh, is something that I can be very proud of yeah and you work basically every day now still don't you you're still doing something every day oh I'm uh, yeah absolutely I'm very engaged in, in so many things and uh, th this is by choice too and uh, uh, I just love to, to, to feel that I'm productive, you know, in many ways. I have uh, uh, personal interest in businesses uh, that, um, that uh, we cultivate. Uh, you know, we have a petroleum company on the West Coast, a winery, and we have some other business involvements, uh, you know, a racing school uh, we have uh, that's based down in Charlotte. Uh, we have uh, karting and games um, uh, business uh, in, in Atlanta in Georgia um, and you know things like that but uh, then of course I work with uh, many companies that are performance or racing related uh, you know I'll start with Firestone obviously a great association for uh, since the 60s and uh, I continue to be part of um, of their fold as far as promotions and such and uh, since they're so closely affiliated with the sport and um, you know, Magnaflow. Also, I've been there for many, many years when the company was just growing. Now they're an icon in the aftermarket business. Uh, and um, and I'm with sponsors such as GoDaddy, for instance, uh, which is part of uh, Michael Michael's team. Uh, uh, and, um, and and on and on. I'm, probably leaving something out but uh, but again at the same time uh, as you can see my plates pretty full yeah a lot of people know you now for the wineries uh, the winery you're really into that obviously and you're not just sticking your name on bottles you are really knowledgeable about it how did that get started I mean obviously Italy is a great wine country but you didn't really you know grow up in Italy so no, I mean the winery uh, just came about uh, as just an opportunity at, at, at the right time. I, I always say it was a weak moment in my life, you know, that I that I uh, got involved in that. But uh, uh, but you know, seriously, I'm uh, I'm very proud of what we have there. And, and as you said, it's not a gimmick that I'm just uh, that my name is on a shingle. Uh, I'm the very much involved. I'm not the winemaker, thank goodness. You know, we have a great winemaker. A lot of people say, oh, Mario Andre, the winemaker, you know, no. Uh, but I do have a, a pretty good appreciation of, of, of wines in general, and uh, I get on very well with uh, my winemaker who's been there since the beginning, since the mid-90s. And uh, we had a great association together. Uh, his experience is vast and very well known and respected in the industry. And um, you know, when you have the right people at the right places, uh, usually things come out well. And, and I'm uh, very, very proud of uh, of our wines that uh, they're distributed throughout you know the country and most states. Like we're in like 46 states where we have some international presence and so forth. As you look back at the race over the decades, you came in the 60s. Is there a time period where you think that was the best time for the Indianapolis 500, just the most fun or whatever? Uh. Well, uh, yes, there were uh, better times uh, uh, that I even, uh, I don't really uh, uh, enjoy talking about. Uh, I think right to the mid-90s, uh, I think, uh, were the glory days. Before and then the split? Before the split. You know, the split really uh, uh, put a, uh, a, you know, a, put a lot of things in doubt, you know, as far as the series took a, 
some of the edge off of uh, the mystique factor because uh, many things uh, were violated, you know, as far as, uh, you know, bringing the best to, uh, to the theater, you know. I, I used to tell Tony George, I said, you know something, you have Indianapolis, but if you don't have the best players here, Indianapolis will fail. I, I gave him the perfect example, I said, La Scala in Milan. I says it's a world-renowned opera house. I says, and uh, unless you have the best opera singers there, La Scala loses its prestige, its image, its uh, everything. And uh, you're taking a risk to do this to Indianapolis, which is a sacred ground for us. And and he, he did uh, he did a lot of damage. Yeah. You know, um, unfortunately, uh, Tony George uh, will go down in history as to really uh, having done a lot of damage to something that actually his grandfather glorified. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a shame that that happened. But uh, uh, good things are happening going forward. However, uh, you know, the, the series is really back together and it's enjoying a wonderful product today. Um, uh, the races, the events uh, are best ever. I mean, uh, I think I can tell you that uh, many will agree with me. Last year, we probably saw the most competitive, the, you know, the most riveting 500 ever, and I think it's shaping up to be that, uh, you know, this year. So, mm -hmm. um, again, it's, um, again, it's, uh, uh, things are good on that front as well, but as you can see, to answer your question, uh, we did lose uh, the IndyCar series per se, lost uh, a great deal, uh, you know, since the split, and now they had to reconstruct. Mm -hmm. And um, But it's going in the right direction, which yeah. is uh, the positive side of it. Yeah. When you're here now and you're out at the track, do you spend much time with the guys you raced against with, you know, A.J. Foyt, Gordon, John Cock, Rutherford, do you guys get together that much? Well, uh, times, yeah, we, we, yeah, we bump into each other and it's always a nice greeting, uh, you know, to, to, to see uh, my friends, uh, the ones that we race together and, uh, yeah, that's always, uh, uh, and those relationships are, I think we all appreciate it, you know, I, uh, I know how I looked up, how I drew, uh, you know, uh, you know, so much, uh, inspiration from you know from my own competitors and so forth and I respected them and and to see them today it's always a, a nice get-together I was just uh, uh, most just last night you know with uh, Johnny Rutherford was Parnelli Jones you know and so on and so Bobby Unser yeah you know we were just there and telling stories and and uh, the stories get better and better every year, you know. But uh, again, it's always an, uh, it's a nice because it's a, it's it's on the lighter side, if you will, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of warmth between. Yeah, us. I, somebody should put a camera in the room when you guys do that. It'd be a good television show right there. Just the stories you have. You, you guys are the survivors, you know. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. You know, we're the survivors. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, and we do we know it? Do we know how lucky we are? When on one with Mario Andretti continues in a moment. Hey, thanks to Mario Andretti for the conversation. You know, I had covered a dozen of his races in Indianapolis, but had never met him individually. But I couldn't have been more pleased with the conversations we had, both for the time he allowed me and the substance of what he had to say. 
He's told the story many times before, obviously, but he made it seem like this was the first time. And forget his reputation about being a bad luck driver. He certainly had a share of bad breaks in the Indianapolis 500, and he did deserve to win more than one race. But as he said, anyone who races as long as he did, and not only survives, but wins as often as he did, can't possibly be considered unlucky. Now, as always, you can hear this or any of the other one-on-one -on -one conversations on our website at 1070thefan.com. Click on Shows, click on One-on-One, -on -one, click on the podcast link, and there you go. I can be reached by email at mark at 1070thefan.com, and of course, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Mark Monte. And I'll be back again next week with yet another conversation with an Indiana sports legend right here on FM 107.5 and 1070 to Van.